I'm Carrie Nugent. I'm a professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Dr. Parvathi Preem, a planetary scientist at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We are recording on October 27th, 2022. I am drinking Arbor Tea's Dandelion Root Organic Herbal Tea, which I've not tried before. What are you going to be drinking? Ooh, that, that sounds awesome. I was, I was just admiring the dandelions in my garden this morning. I have my, my trusty coconut water, which is my go-to drink. It's, it was one of my favorite drinks growing up in India, where you know you could get it on the street in a real coconut. So I have my coconut water. Excellent. Well, I'm going to try this this dandelion tea. <laughs> I don't think I steeped it long enough. It looks very clear. But... Yeah, I have no idea what dandelion tea is supposed to look like. So it sounds delicious. It's very nice, kind of earthy and warming. I actually felt funny buying it because we also have a bunch of dandelions everywhere. I was like, can't I just make this? But maybe I will. It's delightful. How's your coconut water? It's perfect. I, you know, I was wondering if it was if fall was too far along for coconut water, but absolutely <laughs> not. It's, it's perfect. So today we're going to talk about the lunar environment and how we explore it responsibly. And to start with, can we just refresh everybody's memory about the ice deposits near the poles of the moon? What are they? Why are people interested in them? Yes, I spend a lot of my days thinking about ice deposits near the lunar poles. So the idea that there might be ice deposits near the lunar poles has been around since the late 60s. It wasn't until around 2009 that we got the first confirmation that ice deposits do indeed exist near the lunar poles. And this was somewhat unexpected because for most of the time that we've spent studying the moon and thinking about it, we've always thought of it as, as a very dry place. It isn't covered by oceans and ice caps like our neighboring planet Earth. And so the moon at first glance seems like a, a an extraordinarily dry world. And, and for the most part, it is. But then there's this ice near the lunar poles. And so ice exists only in dark, shadowy craters near the poles of the moon, because those are the only places on the lunar surface where it's cold enough that ice can exist and so we've suspected the existence of that ice for a long time. We've known that it does indeed exist for almost 20 years. There's still a lot we don't know about it. One of the reasons why it's important is, is related to one of the reasons why the moon itself is important. So the moon is our closest neighbor in space. And so one of the reasons why the moon is so scientifically important and, and fascinating is that the moon records the history of our solar system neighborhood in a way that the earth doesn't. The earth is a much more active world today. You know, we have oceans that wipe away traces of geological history. We have life that tends to, to grow all over it. The moon lacks some of those processes. And so the lunar surface preserves the history of our solar system neighborhood in a, in a way that we can't quite read anymore on earth. And so the ice at the lunar poles, and I, I realize this is becoming a very long-winded answer. And you're no, this is great. Regretting having me on the podcast already. No, no, no. But the the ice at the lunar poles is interesting for some of the same reasons. We think 
that those ice deposits at the lunar poles may record the history of how water and other ices may have been delivered to the inner solar system. A lot of the molecules that are essential to life as we know it, so water, other things like carbon compounds and some organics are what we refer to in a, in a lunar context as, as volatiles, which is that they usually exist either in gas form or as ices. And so, you know, one of the big questions of planetary science is, is how the ingredients of life got to where they are today. And we think that ISIS at the lunar poles might preserve a record of when and how those ices were delivered. We haven't yet investigated them up close, but one of the reasons that, that polar ices on the moon are so intriguing is that we think that, you know, if we did investigate them up close, we might see something like we see in ice cores on Earth or in the sedimentary layers in the Grand Canyon. You might be able to look back at pages of, of the history of our neighborhood written in, in those layers of ice and rock that may be buried beneath the, the lunar poles. Getting water to Earth seems like a very fundamental, interesting question if you want to know how life evolved and, you know, why the Earth is a good place to live. Could you talk a bit about why other people might be interested in this ice for non-scientific reasons? Another reason folks are, are interested in ice is, again, related to that that reason that water is so essential to, to life as we know it. You know, a lot of civilizations on Earth grew and flourished along riverbanks or along coastal regions. And that's because humans and most life forms as we as we know of need water to survive. And so another reason people are interested in polar ice is that if water exists in significant enough quantities at the lunar poles, the idea is that perhaps we might be able to use it to sustain potential lunar habitats or scientific stations near the lunar poles. We might be able to perhaps use it as a resource to explore further out into the solar system in different ways. How could missions to that ice end up contaminating it? So one of the things I've been thinking about recently is whether in the process of landing on the lunar surface to study polar ices up close, we might end up changing the form of the ices that we want to study. And so why would that happen? The main process that I've been thinking of is potential alteration or contamination of lunar polar ices by spacecraft exhaust. So whenever a lunar lander wants to slow down enough to land safely on the lunar surface, it has to fire its engines. When you fire your engines, you burn rocket fuel. One of the things that you get when you burn rocket fuel is water and also other scientifically interesting volatiles. In some cases, you get things like ammonia, uh, nitrogen, carbon-bearing compounds, which are some of the very things that we want to study the distribution of at the lunar poles. But interestingly enough, those molecules are also some of the things that you get when you burn rocket fuel. And on a side note, I, I should mention another reason folks are interested in water is not just to, to, to sustain potential future human explorers, but also one of the other things you can do with, with water is to split it up into its constituents. You can split it up into hydrogen and oxygen, which you can use as rocket fuel. So one of the reasons folks are interested in accessing lunar water also contributes to the fact that, well, when you're burning rocket fuel on the way down, you're releasing molecules that may already be present at the lunar poles. And so 
this is actually an interesting kind of science experiment. If you if you monitor what happens to those gases that you release and how they behave in the lunar environment, you can learn a lot about how these scientifically interesting molecules behave on the moon. So it's, it's an inevitable science experiment that you end up conducting whenever you fire rocket engines on the way down to the lunar surface. And Luckily for us, it also happens to be an interesting science experiment. We think this hasn't been measured in detail because we've yet to, to land that close to the poles. But one of the ideas that I've been exploring is whether that changes the distribution of what you might see. So for instance, let's say you are sending a mission to the lunar poles to study the distribution of water on the lunar surface. It's important to, to think about and also to constrain how much of the water you measure might have been water that you laid down on the way down. You need to sort of be able to separate out what was already there from what you brought with you. And so that's important for missions that want to study the distribution of water, both to read that scientific record, as well as to determine whether water is present in a form that it could be a potential resource. And so separating out those two components is important. And then there's also that aspect of how long lived is, is that contamination. If we repeatedly visit a site and lay down some ice every time we visit, do we end up compromising potential future scientific investigations? Might we wake it harder for scientists many generations from now who have new questions about the record that those sizes may contain and new ways of reading that record? Do we make it harder to do science in the future? So those are some of the things that, that I've been thinking about and trying to study using computer models, which is sort of my favorite way of doing science. Could you talk a little bit about how those computer models work? The, the computer models usually work, not always. I've, I've spent the, the last couple of weeks debugging. But, I really feel that. Uh, <laughs> but, but, the, but, but the computer models, when, when they work, the, the modeling approach I use is something called DSMC, which stands for Direct Simulation Monte Carlo. One of the things I like about modeling the lunar atmosphere is that the process of building a computer model is almost like setting up a, a lab in which you can do an experiment. So you can think of the moon as, as living in a box within my computer. I have a description of how time passes, how the day night cycles on the moon pass by. That affects the behavior of gases. I have a description of the lunar surface and how water and other molecules interact with that surface. I have sunlight, which acts as the great destroyer of water molecules on the moon. So I have a version of the moon that lives within my computer. If I want to look at a problem like what happens to spacecraft exhaust, I bring a spacecraft into the picture. So I need to know the different kinds of molecules that you get when you burn rocket fuel. I need to know the trajectory, the path that the spacecraft follows down to the surface, because if a spacecraft is approaching the surface and releasing water and other gases along the way, the, the path that it follows matters in terms of figuring out where those molecules end up. And those are things that we can make educated guesses about. If we were trying to do do this for a specific scenario, you know, we'd use a specific combination of gases and a specific trajectory. Uh, for some of the work that I've done so far, I've made reasonable assumptions about what a path down to the lunar surface might look like. And so we, we put those molecules 
into the simulated lunar environment that lives within my computer. And then I look at what happens to the molecules. So when molecules are released at a certain position and a certain time as the spacecraft comes down to the surface, once they're released, those molecules can do several things. Some of them are moving so fast that they escape lunar gravity without even interacting with the surface. Some of them fall down to the lunar surface. Once they touch the lunar surface, if the surface is cold enough, those molecules might stick. If the surface is relatively warm, the molecules might bounce around and, and move further away from the landing site. And in some cases, they might move all the way around the moon and come back to the vicinity of the landing site. But basically, in the models I use, I'm trying to, to construct this picture of what happens to spacecraft exhaust gases by modeling what happens to the individual molecules. You kind of alluded to the results that you had found earlier, but could you tell us what you've been finding? In some recent work that I did, I, I considered sort of a, a nominal hypothetical lunar landing at 70 degrees south. So, so not quite in what we call the South Polar region, but fairly far south. Um, and so I considered a sort of average sized lander, so something that's much lighter than the landers that carried the Apollo astronauts to the surface. So something more along the lines of some of the commercial landers that we might see landing on the moon in the near future. And I should mention that how lightweight the lander is matters because lighter landers need to burn less fuel to slow down. And so you, you release less material into the lunar environment as a result. So we considered a, a, a mid-sized lander landing at a southern latitude, and we looked at what would happen to the exhaust gases. And in some recent simulations I did, I was focusing just on the water component. One of the things I want to do going forward is to look at some of the other gases. But I took a look at what happens to just the water from the spacecraft exhaust over the course of two lunar days. So every lunar day is a month. Uh, so I looked at what happens to that exhaust over the course of two lunar days. And so we found a, a few interesting things. One of the things we found, which, which we kind of expected, was that the lunar atmosphere is normally so thin that even a mid-sized lander releases enough water that for a short period after landing, and certainly during landing itself, you temporarily increase the, the density of the lunar exosphere by hundreds or thousands of times wow. <laughs> near the vicinity of the landing site. And that sounds like a lot, but you know, in, in practical terms, the, the lunar atmosphere is, is so thin that, that there's not a lot of water involved, but, but still, that is pretty significant. At least for a short period of time, the, the lunar exosphere is, is, is much denser close to the lander. And then we found that that water tends to move outward from the landing site and you end up with this almost global, very thin, and again, very thin exosphere uh, made of water from the spacecraft. So those water molecules don't stay in the vicinity of the landing site. They, they do move all the way around the moon. A small fraction of those water molecules ended up being deposited in some of those cold, shadowed craters near the lunar south pole and a, a, a tiny almost negligible amount did end up making it all the way to similarly shadowed cold regions near the north pole wow. but we found that for a southern hemisphere uh, landing you would end up with a the small amount of water from the lander being deposited at the lunar south pole 
And so extrapolating from, from that particular scenario, we might surmise several things. So, so there, there are uncertainties in, in the model. You know, I think one of the, the most sensible things that's ever been said about computer models is that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And so there's, <laughs> there's always uncertainties in the model. But we might surmise several things. One of the things that my modeling indicates is that this could potentially be an observable process. If we have either landed stations or orbiters positioned appropriately looking in the right direction at the right time, this could be something that we could measure to, to test if these models are even a little bit right. So this, this could be something that is measurable. Something else that we found was that even though spacecraft can alter the lunar exosphere significantly and globally, for the most part, for a mid-sized lander, that alteration tends to be relatively localized and short-lived. So a couple of lunar days after landing, most of the, most of at least the water, other gases might behave differently, but at least most of the water released by a lander would likely have been destroyed by sunlight and the remaining small portion of it would have been captured by those cold shattered craters near the poles. But a mid-sized spacecraft doesn't alter the lunar exosphere forever. But this is an alteration that, that lasts at least a couple of lunar days. If you think this through, landers of, of different sizes are going to be visiting the moon. And so as you might expect, the larger a lander, the longer lived the change that it causes to the lunar environment and the more significant that change is. Uh, also, because we found that for a Southern hemisphere landing, most of the water that remains behind on the moon permanently trapped in those cold shattered craters is near the south pole for for a southern hemisphere landing you know we might expect that if we have landers that land closer to the south pole they might end up depositing a larger fraction of of their water vapor within craters near the south pole even though this work is preliminary does this maybe offer us some guidelines to how we should explore the moon? Or is it just something that we should think about and study more? Do you have any thoughts about that? I think the the answer is both. This shows that, you know, human scale activities can alter the environment in significant and potentially long lived ways. And so I think the, the main sort of guideline that emerges from this work is that, and especially given that this is something we can model, the, you know, there, there might be parts of the model that, that aren't quite right yet. But, but I think one of my main takeaways from, from doing that work is that this is something that we should be trying to understand. It's not something that, that we can totally dismiss. Sure, for, for a mid-sized lander landing in the southern hemisphere, some of the exhaust gases get trapped at the at the lunar poles. Those gases might not last over geological time. But at the same time, when we interact with the lunar environment up close, as we plan to be doing a lot in, in the years to come, we do end up changing it. And my main takeaway from doing this work is that it's a just really interesting scientifically to 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 look at what happens, but b also from the standpoint of ex exploring the moon responsibly, it's it's something that's important to to monitor and to keep track of. These are these are things that we should be 
thinking about. If we ignore it, we might also end up unintentionally making irreversible changes to a really unique environment. And that's something that I think we ought to try and understand. And so, but we really are just at the beginning of developing that understanding. I sort of like to think of planetary science as having three big questions. Where are we? How did we get here? And where do we go next? And I think there's also a fourth question that's just emerging, which is how do we change the environments of the other worlds that we visit? It's something that we're thinking a lot about on, on our home planet, but I think it's something that's likely to be more and more important as we explore other solar system worlds at closer range. The moon might be where we start to really think about how we address that question. How do we change the environments of the solar system worlds that we visit? In some changes, it might turn out that those changes are short-lived or reversible. Some other changes might be long-lived and irreversible. The fate of exhaust gases from a mid-sized lander produces a change that's short-lived and relatively small, but also, you know, irreversible. And, and that's just a small part of the picture. Human activities can affect the lunar environment in ways other than spacecraft can by releasing their exhaust gases. And I think it, it's a rewarding and interesting, scientifically rich and also important question to, to try and get a handle on. Beautifully said. My next question's really long because I want to quote from the paper you're a co-author on about the ancestral global commons. So you are a co-author on a paper that I love called The Impact of Satellite Constellations on Space as an Ancestral Global Commons, which was published in Nature Astronomy in 2020. And that paper covers a lot of things. I would highly recommend it. But I just wanted to read one passage, which references part of the Artemis Accords. And that passage reads, one principle titled Protecting Heritage includes language narrowly intended to protect the Apollo landing sites, a very specific type of heritage. There is no recognition that the lunar environment itself is worth protecting, or any acknowledgement of the cultural importance of the moon. One might make the case that the cultural significance of the moon, the brightest object in our night sky, our neighbor, and a witness to 4.5 billion years of solar system history, is far greater than the footprints and detritus left behind on its surface just decades ago. And that idea has really stuck with me since I've read it. And I think if you had asked me two years ago what I would think was worth protecting on the moon, I might have just also said the Apollo landing sites and I would have stopped there. But of course, the, the face of the moon is something that is that links us together as a species for hundreds of thousands of years. It really like connects us with all of our all of humanity's ancestors. And it, that's something really amazing. It's this unchanged thing that everyone's been able to look at. And we should maybe think before we change that. That has really shifted my perspective. Thank you and your co-authors for that. I was wondering if you had any other kind of thoughts about ways you'd like to see astronomers and other space explorers shift their perspective. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I and I'm so glad you you liked the paper. So those couple of sentences were my only contribution to Really? <laughs> to, to the paper. They're so good. You you can you, you can tell because the sentences are are, are terribly convoluted. But but that, <laughs> that paper was was great fun to to be part of. It was and so the, the other ninety-nine percent of it was was written by my my wonderful colleagues, Upper Navankadition. James Lowenthal, Monica Vidari. 
but I'm but I'm so glad those 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 lines uh, stuck with you. And so speaking of changes in in perspective, something that captured what I was feeling really well was another piece of writing. And I, I highly recommend that that everyone look this up. But a while ago, uh, a few Australian and, and American academics put together something that they called a Declaration of the Rights of the Moon. And it sort of laid forth the right of the moon to exist in the glorious state that it does. I, I read the Declaration of the, the Rights of the Moon. I, I reread it every now and then. But I think that sort of captures some of my views on this. And I think the a shift in perspective that I'd like everyone to to, to at least consider is is valuing solar system environments for what they are rather than what use they can be to us unconsciously. You know, most people who spend their their days thinking about other planets and their weird and wonderful environments do develop a, a sort of love for for those landscapes. I think you know many planetary scientists do do in some sense at least value solar system environments for what they are. And 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 of course that's that's also true not just of of folks who do this for a living, but for anyone who's who sort of ever spent some time thinking about those weird and wonderful places out there. But I think sometimes, especially when we think about so-called lifeless environments, we don't always recognize that they are environments and that they are worthy of protection and or not of protection, but of just existing for, for what they are. I venture to say that we might make better decisions if we start from a point where we value environments for for what they are rather than what use they can be to to us i think the the way we think about places matters sometimes the way we think about places translates into the way we think about people just as you know just as ideally we'd like to think of people and value people for who they are rather than you know what use they are to us what if we think about places the same way? We value them for, for what they are rather than as, as a means to, to some end. And so one of the reasons I found the, the Declaration of the Rights of the Moon so powerful is that it it changes the starting point from, from that, from one of approaching the moon with respect for what it is, rather than thinking about what can we get out of it. And of course, that doesn't mean that we don't interact with those environments at all. But I think just starting from the consideration that environments have a right to to exist in the form that they do uh, without our intervention helps guide how we think about how we should then interact with those environments. That's super interesting. It's a much clearer way of expressing a pet peeve I've had for a while about planetary science, which is when you make a proposal for a, a scientific study or a mission, you have to justify it with reasons. And I've always thought, why can't we just go there because it's cool? You know what I mean? And I know that sounds very juvenile, but like, why don't we just explore Neptune for what it is? And we don't even have to worry about exactly why. It's a cool new place. It's beautiful. It exists. Why don't we just value Neptune for Neptune? 
that wasn't quite what you were saying, but I felt a resonance there. Yeah, because it's cool is a perfectly valid answer for, <laughs> for, for anything. Yeah, I, I use it all the time as justification for various <laughs> One interesting thing is that the, so the Declaration of the Rights of the Moon was inspired by movements on Earth to recognize the, the so-called rights of nature. So I'm not a lawyer, but there is increasingly a body of law around the world recognizing the rights of nature. So the the rights of, for instance, rivers to exist. There are rivers in New Zealand, Whanganui River in New Zealand. There has been a recent move to recognize that river as, as a legal person, um, as having the, the right to exist. Whenever I've been going around telling everyone they should look at the Declaration of the of, of, of the Rights of the Moon. One question I get is, well, if we recognize the moon as having a right to exist, does that mean that we don't explore the moon, that we never go back? That would be that would be terrible, says everyone I know. Um, <laughs> and I think, well, no, that's that's not what it means, because when you recognize a river as having a right to to exist and to flow and to to flourish, that doesn't mean that you don't draw water from the river. That doesn't mean you don't try and remediate the, the environment of the river. You, you do still interact with it, but you do so from a different point of view, from a footing where you and the river are, are equal almost. And so, so, it's, so it's a different starting point. It doesn't mean that we don't explore, that we don't go to the moon, that we don't learn as, as, as much as we can and explore strange new places. It means that we, we start from, from a different point. Something else that's interesting to think about is how do we put some of these ideas into practice? And so that might involve, for instance, things like doing environmental impact assessments before planning large-scale human activities. And, and again, those are those are things that we've learned from interacting with environments on, on our home planet that we can take out into the solar system. We might also think about not visiting certain regions and setting them aside for future generations to explore. One of the lovely things that the Apollo missions did, a, a certain fraction of the samples that were brought back by the Apollo missions were left unopened. They took sort of like this amazingly foresighted decision to not open and analyze some of those moon rocks. And so the assumption there was the optimistic and it turned out totally justified one that, you know, in generations to come, we will have new questions and we'll have new ways of answering those questions. So let's leave aside some of the moon rocks for the future. I think similarly, some of these permanently shadowed regions near the lunar poles. I often think it would be interesting to think of them in that way as, you know, let's let let's let's visit some of those regions, learn what we can, but perhaps perhaps there are some that we don't want to visit to avoid altering them in, in some irreversible way. Maybe there are some that we leave for future generations with their own questions and their own ways of answering those questions to to look at. Absolutely. That's a really lovely analogy with the Apollo samples. I think that really puts it in perspective for a lot of people. There's a great 99% Invisible podcast about the rights of nature, too. If people are interested in more of that, they have a whole hour on it. Oh, cool. Well, this has been totally wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Prem, for being on the show. And now that we've heard all about the lunar environment and how we can think of it, we get to hear a fun fact about Parvathi. 
I, I discovered during grad school that I am very much a cat person, despite having thought of myself as a dog person for all of my life before that. But I, but I realized that I am at heart a cat person. I have two cats, uh, Smokey and Apple Dumpling. Smokey <laughs> has the, they, they came with the name, so I'm not responsible for those. But Smokey has the deepest and most continuous purrs ever. Apple Dumpling is really good at playing fetch. <laughs> That's my fun fact. Well, thank you so much for sharing and thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron3030. Huge thanks to Deltron3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listentospacepod.com and we're at listentospacepod on Twitter. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.